You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 280th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last episode, we talked about how Ulysses S. Grant had set his sights on capturing Vicksburg, even as the Confederates, now with John C. Pemberton in command, were strengthening the landward defenses there at their citadel on the bluffs above the Mississippi River. Early in November 1862, Grant and the Army of the Tennessee began moving south toward the rebel position along the Tallahatchie River. Grant knew that Pemberton depended on the Mississippi Central Railroad for supplies just as much as he did. He also knew that the most vulnerable point on the line was the wooden railroad bridge over the Yalabusha River at Grenada, 60 miles south of the Tallahatchie. If that bridge could be destroyed, the Confederate line of communications would be severed, and Pemberton would be forced to retreat from his position along the Tallahatchie. On November 27th, Brigadier General Alfred Hovey led 7,000 Union cavalry and infantry across the Mississippi River from Helena, Arkansas. Cold rains fell almost without ceasing and turned the countryside into a sea of mud, but Hovey persevered. When his infantry bogged down, he gambled and sent his cavalry splashing eastward toward the Mississippi Central Railroad. The Federal horsemen tore up a section of track a few miles north of the Yalabusha, but were unable to destroy the bridge, which not only was too wet to burn, but also was guarded by a rapidly increasing number of Confederates. On December 7th, Hovey withdrew back across the Mississippi to Helena. His force was followed by 500 or so runaway slaves, who undoubtedly were in a more upbeat mood than the wet and weary Federal soldiers. Hovey's unheralded raid may not have been a success, but it did demonstrate the importance of Grant's authority to make use of Union forces stationed across the Mississippi River in Arkansas and Missouri. Pemberton, by contrast, couldn't issue orders to Confederate forces over along the west bank of the Great River, which would cost him dearly in the months to come. The operation also demonstrated that audacity wasn't confined to soldiers in Butternut and Gray. 
Much is made of Confederate cavalry raids in the Civil War, especially in the sparsely settled West, where columns of horsemen appeared without warning and disappeared just as quickly. But Union raids also were common in this theater of the war, and often were just as dramatic and as destructive as their Confederate counterparts, though they've attracted far less attention from historians. Hovey's raid was one of the first federal strikes deep into rebel territory, but it would not be the last. The incursion awakened Pemberton to the vulnerability of his line of communications, and so in early December, much to Grant's surprise and delight, the Confederates abandoned their position along the Tallahatchie River and fell back 60 miles to Grenada. Rebel soldiers and impressed or hired slaves spread out along the south bank of the Yalabusha and threw up new earthworks in sight of the slightly scorched railroad bridge. While that was going on, Grant's Federals trudged southward, following in the wake of the withdrawing Confederates. The campaign was off to a good start, but Grant was soon distracted by rumors of political maneuverings deep in his own rear. Remember, by the fall of 1862, the Mississippi River had been closed for 18 months. Even though the volume of east-west commerce on the railroads connecting the Midwest and Atlantic seaboard grew every year, the importance of the Mississippi as the principal artery of trade for Midwestern merchants and farmers, was not only still very real, but, as we've indicated previously, had also assumed mythic proportions in the minds of the region's populace. The Union naval victories along the river in the spring and summer of 1862 had raised hopes that the Mississippi would soon be opened down to the Gulf of Mexico. But the failure to take Vicksburg and the apparent Confederate resurgence in the fall were severe blows to Midwestern morale. Congressmen, governors, and newspaper editors from Ohio to Iowa demanded that more be done. The result was a classic demonstration of the inextricably intertwined relationship between political, economic, and military matters in war. Major General John McClernand was an ambitious Democratic politician and a talented amateur soldier from Illinois. He had demonstrated courage and ability at Fort Donelson and at Shiloh, but he chafed at being subordinate to Grant. Now, well aware of the growing dissatisfaction in the Midwest with the progress of the war, McClernand saw an opportunity to gain both military glory and political capital for himself. And so in mid-1862, McClernand proposed to Abraham Lincoln that he raise a force of Midwestern troops and then personally lead them down the Mississippi River to Vicksburg. General-in-Chief Henry Halleck opposed creating a large command in this way, outside of the normal military organizational structure, and giving it to a political general like McClernand, but Lincoln was frustrated by the sluggish pace of operations in the West after Shiloh. The president, therefore, was willing to experiment with anything that might achieve military success, 
and encourage the administration's supporters in the Midwest. And so John McClernand got what he wanted, or so it seemed, but at a cost. He earned Halleck's unrelenting hostility, which was bad enough, but he also inadvertently cemented an alliance between Halleck and Grant. This was a big deal since, during the first year of the war, Halleck had developed a low opinion of Grant and, on more than one occasion, had tried to shuffle him aside. But Halleck now realized that Grant, a fellow West Pointer, was the only general who would be able to put a stop to McClernand's maneuverings for a major independent command. At least in principle, Lincoln had approved a special operation led by McClernand, but, but in drafting the orders for that operation, Halleck and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton shrewdly thwarted McClernand's ambition and blocked his attempt to operate independently. He was directed to proceed to the Midwest, raise new regiments, and send them downriver to Memphis. McClernand naturally assumed he would command the troops he'd raised. But Halleck, of course, knew that Grant's instructions permitted him to use, as he saw fit, every soldier stationed in or passing through his department of the Tennessee, which included Memphis. It would turn out that when it came to bureaucratic infighting, McClernand was no match for the general-in-chief. Grant was puzzled by the talk of another operation against Vicksburg and telegraphed Halleck for clarification, asking, quote, Am I to understand that I lay still here while an expedition is fitted out at Memphis, or do you want me to push south as far as possible? Halleck's reply was cryptic but reassuring, quote, You have command of all troops sent to your department and have permission to fight the enemy when you please. Well, Grant had no trouble reading between the lines. He decided to commandeer McClernand's newly raised regiments and launch a waterborne operation of his own against Vicksburg, and he placed Major General William Tecumseh Sherman in charge of the hastily organized expedition. Although a West Point graduate, Sherman's record thus far in the war had been, shall we say, uneven. But Grant, for whatever reason, thought highly of Sherman. Maybe he recognized Sherman's potential, or perhaps simply valued his patriotism and personal loyalty. But in any event, while the Union war effort was often hamstrung by personal ambition and political maneuvering, McClernand being a case in point, Grant trusted Sherman to do his best and what was best for the country. The Downriver Expedition was modeled after Grant's successful campaigns against Forts Henry and Donelson. Sherman would have about 33,000 men, 20,000 from the Army of the Tennessee, and 13,000 from the Helena Garrison. They would be packed aboard a flotilla of transports and proceed down the Mississippi and then up the Yazoo River to Haines Bluff, about 15 miles north of Vicksburg. After landing and securing the high ground, 
Sherman's force would move inland between Vicksburg and Jackson and cut the Southern Railroad of Mississippi, which ran east-west between those two places. The plan had its merits, but there were also some red flags. The most important being that once Sherman went down the Mississippi, he and Grant would be separated by hundreds of miles of Confederate-held territory. That meant they wouldn't be able to coordinate their movements or support one another in a crisis. In addition, Pemberton would have the advantage of interior lines, that is, the ability to shift his rebel troops back and forth between Grenada and Vicksburg using the railroads. Nonetheless, Grant was optimistic. He also was in a hurry lest McClernand arrive in Memphis before the expedition was underway, and so Grant ordered Sherman to get going as soon as possible. In his memoirs, Grant was honest about the rush, saying, quote, I feared that delay might bring McClernand. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. In order for Sherman's descent on Vicksburg to succeed, Grant had to fix the Confederate army in place at Grenada. However, he decided not to press Pemberton hard until he learned whether Sherman had gained a lodgment at Haines Bluff. In December, Grant informed Sherman that, quote, The enemy are as yet on the Yalabusha. I am pushing down towards them slowly, but so as to keep up the impression of a continuous move. 
It's important to understand that Grant's approach to the Vicksburg problem had evolved rapidly in only a few months. He was no longer wedded to the idea of an overland thrust across the Mississippi or to any particular plan. His thinking at this point in time was essentially opportunistic. In other words, if Pemberton stood his ground at Grenada, Grant would give the impression of preparing for battle and thus allow Sherman to move inland from Haines Bluff. But if Pemberton fell back from Grenada or sent substantial reinforcements to Vicksburg, then Grant would force his way across the Yalabusha, advance south toward the state capital of Jackson, and threaten Pemberton's lines of communication and supply. As we've mentioned before, and we'll mention again, the struggle against Vicksburg was the critical stage in Ulysses S. Grant's development as a great commander. During the long, frustrating campaign, his characteristic determination and aggressiveness remained as strong as ever, but he demonstrated that he was learning to anticipate difficulties and adjust his plans as circumstances dictated. These skills first appeared during the overland movement across Mississippi, and they marked Grant's evolution from a fighter to a general. While Sherman crowded men, animals, and supplies aboard a fleet of transports at Memphis, Grant continued to advance south along the line of the Mississippi Central Railroad. He described the situation in a letter to his sister, telling her, quote, I am extended now like a peninsula into an enemy's country, with a large army depending for their daily bread upon keeping open a line of railroad running 190 miles through an enemy's country, or at least through a territory occupied by a people embittered and hostile to us. In mid-December, the Federals reached Oxford, 50 miles inside north-central Mississippi. Grant soon received welcome news from Halleck, who directed him to divide the Army of the Tennessee into four corps. The 13th Corps, under McClernand. The 15th, under Sherman. The 16th, under Major General Stephen Hurlbut. And the 17th Corps, under Major General James McPherson. While Grant didn't relish the idea of again having McClernand as a subordinate, Halleck's order at least meant that the previous uncertain relationship between the two Western generals was clarified. Grant informed McClernand of his reduced authority and of the imminent departure of the Vicksburg expedition under Sherman's command, but McClernand didn't receive the message due to disruptions caused by Confederate cavalry raids. This snafu led to confusion and bad feelings in the weeks ahead. Unaware that anything was amiss, Grant remained with McPherson's and Hurlbut's Corps on the Mississippi Central Railroad in northern Mississippi. Sherman prepared to proceed down the Mississippi River with his own corps and that of McClernand, who was still in Illinois and ignorant of the fact that his operation was unfolding without him. Grant's hastily formulated two-pronged offensive aimed at prying the Confederates out of Vicksburg, was proceeding smoothly. But only two days later, everything was to change. (music) 
The reason Grant's plan started to come off the rails was that Lieutenant Colonel John Griffith, a Texas cavalryman, suggested to Pemberton that a raid into Grant's rear might reach the Federal Supply Depot at Holly Springs, about 30 miles north of Oxford. Griffith pointed out that the loss of so much material would surely slow or even halt the enemy offensive, and when Pemberton recalled how close Hobie's raid against the Yalabusha River Railroad Bridge had come to success, he decided to act on Griffith's suggestion. Now, we didn't mention that while Jefferson Davis had removed Earl Van Dorn from departmental command, the Confederate president nevertheless had wanted him to remain in Mississippi. Well, a potentially awkward situation was avoided when Pemberton placed Van Dorn in command of the department's cavalry division, an assignment the impulsive and reckless Van Dorn was eminently suited for, since thus far in the Civil War, the former cavalry officer had commanded rebel armies as if they were regiments of horsemen, with little concern for niceties like logistics. At any rate, for the first and only time in the war, Earl Van Dorn was properly matched to an assignment. Pemberton directed Van Dorn to destroy the enemy's supply depot at Holly Springs and spread confusion in the Federal rear areas. And so on December 17th, Van Dorn led 3,500 horsemen across the Yalabusha and swung around to the east of Grant's army. The Confederate column thundered into Holly Springs at dawn on December 20th and quickly overran the unprepared Union garrison. The Federal commander at Holly Springs, Colonel Robert Murphy, surrendered his 1,500 men without putting up much of a fight. He was later dismissed from the Army for his quote-unquote disgraceful surrender of Holly Springs. The delighted Confederate horsemen were amazed at the abundance of clothing, weaponry, equipment, and food that lay before them. Captain John Bates of the 9th Texas Cavalry wrote of how, quote, Our whole division helped themselves to as much clothing as they could wear and carry. Almost every man fitted himself out in Yankee uniforms, boots, hats, caps, pants, shirts, overcoats, and etc., As far as uniforms went, we were transformed into Yankee cavalry. Besides the above, we captured not less than 600 or 800 horses and mules, burned some 300 wagon loads of ammunition, and after our men had picked out such arms as they preferred instead of their own, we destroyed 6,000 or 7,000 stand of Enfield and Springfield rifles. The fact is, I have never seen such destruction of property in so short a time. The plundering and destruction continued all day and into the night. Then, after leaving Holly Springs, Van Dorn continued north, his men decked out in their new blue uniforms. The Confederates reached Bolivar in southwestern Tennessee before turning back. Van Dorn eluded pursuing Union cavalry and returned safely from his 12-day excursion. During the raid, each side lost about 200 men killed and wounded, in addition to the large number of federal prisoners captured and paroled at Holly Springs. 
Van Dorn's raid would probably have been enough to halt Grant in his tracks, but unknown to Pemberton, a second Confederate foray was underway at the same time. You see, several weeks earlier, Pemberton had asked Braxton Bragg over in Middle Tennessee to do something to distract Grant and relieve the pressure on Pemberton there in northern Mississippi. Bragg promised to help, and so it was that just about the time Van Dorn rode out of Grenada, another Confederate cavalry force swept into western Tennessee from the east. Beginning on December 15th, Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest and 2,500 rebel horsemen rampaged around in Grant's rear for nearly two weeks. The Confederates cut railroad and telegraph lines and generally wreaked havoc, but they almost stayed too long. At Parker's Crossroads on December 31st, Federals under Colonel John Fuller surprised Forrest while he was already engaged with another force of Yankees. Forrest narrowly escaped the trap, but managed to return to the safety of Bragg's lines on New Year's Day, 1863. Forrest's spectacular raid into western Tennessee cost Union forces over 1,500 men, most of them captured and promptly paroled, while the Confederates lost about 500 men, two-thirds of them at Parker's Crossroads. This was the only occasion in the Civil War when cavalry alone determined the outcome of a major campaign. When Grant learned of the logistical disaster at Holly Springs and the damage done in Tennessee to his vulnerable line of supply, the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, by Forrest, Grant abandoned his attempt to reach Vicksburg by marching overland across Mississippi. Van Dorn had destroyed his forward supply base, and Forrest had made it impossible to restock that depot for at least several months. Grant therefore ordered a withdrawal of the Army of the Tennessee. As tens of thousands of Federal soldiers, along with their horses and mules, retraced their steps across northern Mississippi, they subsisted in large part on food and forage gathered from farms located within 15 miles of the railroad. Two decades later, Grant would recall, quote, I was amazed at the quantity of supplies the country afforded. Well, bless his heart, but Sam Grant may well have been the last man in the Army of the Tennessee to have gotten the word, since federal soldiers had, um, made use of local foodstuffs to supplement their rations throughout the campaign. Captain Lewis Iman of the 116th Illinois observed, quote, We clean the country pretty well of provisions where we travel, although there is plenty to eat in this part of the country. We take all the cattle and hogs and sheep that we want, and that is considerable. There is plenty of them where we have come, and lots of sweet potatoes. Nearly everything that we eat, we get here in the country as we go along. During the withdrawal, Grant belatedly realized that a mobile army could sustain itself inside Confederate territory by means of organized foraging, particularly if the foraging took place in a region thus far untouched by the hard hand of war. Grant appreciated it was something worth keeping in mind. That, by the way, is a bit of foreshadowing. But in any case, while his troops plotted north, 
Grant pondered the advantages of moving the Army of the Tennessee down the Mississippi River to Vicksburg, leaving behind only the minimum force necessary to secure Memphis and Corinth against enemy raids. One benefit of this would be that, by returning to a familiar, river-based mode of operations, Grant would have a more secure and efficient line of communications. And without a vulnerable railroad to protect, he would have more soldiers available for combat operations at the front. In other words, the Army of the Tennessee would have a much shorter tail and much larger teeth. In the end, Grant concluded that success lay down the Mississippi. Having reached that conclusion, he realized that he had to warn Sherman not to attack at Haines Bluff, because with Grant pulling back from Grenada, Pemberton was free to shift his Confederates to meet another Federal threat from a different direction, namely Sherman's force. What happened next was aptly summed up by Grant in his memoirs. Quote, Pemberton got back to Vicksburg before Sherman got there. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Holly Springs by Brandon H. Beck. This is another recommendation that comes out of the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series. We're actually working on putting the finishing touches on the next members episode, which will be about Van Dorn's Holly Springs raid. But if you aren't a member of the Strawfoot Brigade, or just want to dig deeper into the raid on your own, then Beck's book is a good place to start. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And speaking of the Strawfoot Brigade, we want to thank the newest members to sign on over at Patreon. Scott, Anders, William, and Jim. Mary and Casey, Joseph, Mindy, Melissa, and Ivan. David, Eric, Carl, and Zane. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your support of the podcast. It's your generous support that helps keep the podcast moving forward. And then as we release this episode, we're just a few days away from it being one month until the meetup at Gettysburg. And yes, we're still planning on being at the Virginia Monument on Seminary Ridge at 10 a.m. on Saturday, June 22nd. Yep, rain or shine, we'll be there. We're really excited about visiting the battlefield again uh, here shortly before we get to Gettysburg on the podcast. And we're excited and a bit nervous, too, about meeting some of you guys there. Um, But anyway, that's going to be coming up pretty quickly. And before we know it, we'll be there. And we hope you will be, too. All right. That's about it for this show. So we'll say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.